Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. Uh, We are so glad that you're joining us uh, for our study of God's uh, Word. We also want to welcome our friends at First Baptist Church of Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. Okay, that's good, yeah. There you go. That was awesome. That was awesome, you guys. Great. Okay. Uh, See if you think the same thing about the sermon right now. Okay, yeah. See if you do that at the end of the sermon. Uh, For the past seven weeks, we've been talking about the evidence, the concrete objective evidence that this is indeed God's Word, and that we can trust that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. We've been talking about the evidence that the New Testament writers told the truth, and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the evidence, the scientific evidence for the scriptures, uh, the fact that science and faith are compatible with each other. We've been looking at evidence that God created the universe and evidence uh, for miracles. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Eric uh, preached just a great message on how Christianity is by far the best answer for evil in the world and, and the question of why is there evil within the world. And so for seven weeks, we've been talking about the thousands of different pieces of evidence that we can know that God's Word is true. And we just scratched the the surface. We just kind of did the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Because there are probably thousands, if not tens of thousands, of pieces of evidence, archaeologically, historically, fulfilled prophecy. Hundreds, if not thousands, of fulfilled prophecies given hundreds or thousands of years before they were fulfilled. Scientific evidence. And so it's as if God is saying, if you can test me and test the truth of this book, if you can test me and find me objectively to be true, then you can trust this book when it talks about matters of salvation and matters of eternity. So now today we come to the question, what about hell? And if you're a visitor with us here today, I want you to know this is not an every Sunday kind of thing. I was talking to some visitors after the 8.30 service. They said, we're visiting today. I said, I don't always preach about hell, okay? Just, it's just a 20-part series, and so, uh, no, it's just a one-time thing. We do it every few years because we've got to talk about the whole truth of God's Word, even when it's unpleasant, even when it's difficult. And I do ask for your prayers because I've been just studying this, and, and a lot of my spare time is spent reading books on hell and thinking about it and studying the scriptures on it over the last two or three weeks. And it is such a heartbreaking, heavy subject. Uh, just so, I, I, I've literally woken up in the middle of the night and just laid awake at night because of the burden of this particular subject. I hope this every Sunday, but particularly this Sunday, I am praying that anything that is not of God that I share in the next few minutes, you will forget by the time you get to your car. But anything that is of God, you'll hear, uh, you will take to heart, and you will act on it. Uh, Gallup poll a few years back found that 81% of Americans uh, believe in heaven and 70% in hell, uh, but only 6% of Americans believe there's any chance that they personally will go to hell. And so it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a, a thing for the typical American thinking where we believe that you've got to have a hell for people like Hitler or the Las Vegas shooter. Uh, for people like that, you need to have a hell. But it's not something that ordinary people need to concern themselves with. 
As a matter of fact, it's probably the most um, offensive, uh, one of the most offensive things about Christianity. Bertrand Russell, who's a pr- uh, prominent atheist, said, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he, Jesus, believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. And for Christ's followers, it's our most uncomfortable uh, subject. C.S. Lewis writes, The doctrine of hell is one of the chief grounds on which Christianity is attacked as barbarous and the goodness of God impugned. Now, a couple of little side notes I want to say before we get into the main part uh, of the message. And one is that it's very interesting that hell, the concept of judgment and hell, is offensive within our North American culture and in Europe as well. But it is not offensive in many other places around the world. For example, where Christianity is most growing now, Christianity is far more an African, Asian, um, South American movement. The continents of South America, Africa, and Asia are just exploding with Christ followers. And just it's the fastest time in our history. Uh, one out of three people on the planet, and it's just growing all the time. Uh, Christ followers are just exploding around the world. It's in every nook and cranny. It is by far the most global movement in world history. It is in almost every ethnic group, every racial group, every linguistic group. It's in every, Christianity has found a home in almost every niche, tiny niche around the world. And in places like Africa, Asia, and South America, the concept of judgment and hell is not offensive. You know what they find offensive? These are more tradition-based, honor-based cultures. They find the concept of turning the other cheek the most offensive. They find the concept of love your enemies Uh, as being offensive. Now, in our Western culture, that's kind of the coolest thing about Jesus, right? That he said, turn the other cheek, that he he said, uh, love your enemies. That's kind of a hip thing to promote with Jesus here in our culture. But in other cultures, that's the most offensive, but hell and judgment is not so offensive like it is within our culture. You know what that tells me about Christianity is that it is the transcultural truth of God. Jesus is transcultural. That is, he is above culture. And therefore, it is no surprise that different things in different cultures are offensive based on where the, uh, the message of Jesus is taken. Because it's above culture, and therefore it offends different cultures in different ways. It attracts different cultures in different ways. It offends different cultures in different ways. Now, another myth that's out there is that a God of judgment leads to violence. And as a matter of fact, the exact opposite is true. It is only when we believe that one day God will bring justice. God even said, leave vengeance up to me. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. He said, don't take vengeance in your own hands. Leave it up to me. And it's only in that context that we can say, I will not take vengeance. I will not take revenge in this lifetime because God is going to bring justice eventually. Uh, there's a writer that I want to read to you now. It's not in the, in the study outline but it's just so powerful, I'd like to read it to you. Uh, Yale theologian, Miroslav Vaf. And he's a Croatian who has seen firsthand the violence in the Balkans, where he grew up. This is a man that is a little boy, didn't grow up in the security of a suburban home in America, where he's able to make up theories about violence uh, from a distance from violence. This is a person who grew up in the middle of terrible violence and injustice. And here's what he wrote. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. 
My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. It is in the reality of injustice that we most cling to the idea of a God of justice and of ultimate judgment. It is only when we believe that God will one day judge injustice, that we cannot take matters into our own hands, but instead we can say we're going to leave it up to God and we will not be violent because we will leave that up uh, to God to eventually um, bring justice. Now, as we get into this, we need to know the heart of God. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's heart doesn't take any pleasure in in judgment. Uh, He is a just God as well as a loving God, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. You can almost hear God pleading, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of, of Israel? God's heart is broken for people that reject him. The same with Jesus. Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. He talked about hell more than any other subject that he talked about. And it's because he came into the world to keep people from going to hell. He suffered hell on the cross so that nobody would have to go there. And so one of the major themes of his preaching was about hell and a warning of judgment, but his heart broke for it. He took no pleasure like his father in in the death of the wicked. You know, I heard something a, a few weeks back that has just hung with me. I thought it was so powerful. You know, Judas Iscariot was the disciple that uh, betrayed Jesus. And somebody has written, Jesus treated Judas Iscariot so well that the disciples had no idea who was going to betray Jesus. Think about that for a minute. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And everybody looks around and says, me, you, you. Nobody thought Judas Iscariot. Jesus treated the person who was about to betray him, who he knew from the beginning was going to betray him, treated him so well that the disciples didn't have a clue that he was the guy that was going to betray Jesus. That's the Jesus we follow, the one who loves, the one who cares, the one whose heart breaks, who is, does bring about judgment and justice, but his heart breaks in the process. We want our church at Purpose Church, and we want to individually as Christ followers be like this. There once was a little church looking for a new pastor. One Sunday, they had a candidate fill the pulpit, and he preached on hell. The next Sunday, another preacher came, and he preached on hell as well. The congregation called the second man to serve as their pastor. When he learned the pastor before him also preached on hell, he asked a wise old man in the church why they hadn't called the first man. He replied, when the first man preached on people going to hell, he seemed to almost be glad about it. When you preached on people going to hell, we could tell that it broke your heart. And that's what we want Purpose Church to be. We want uh, Purpose Church to be a, a, a church whose heart breaks like Jesus did, whose heart breaks like God's did, who breaks for the lost. Almost an informal theme verse for our church is Ephesians 4, verse 15, 
where Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love. We want to be a church that is not afraid to speak the truth, that is bold in talking about unpopular things within our faith and within God's word, but we always want to do it with humility, with graciousness, with kindness, uh, and with love. Um, This past Thursday was my least favorite day of the year and my favorite day of the year. Uh, Why was it my least favorite? Well, uh, those of you that know me well know that I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, right, Pastor Eric? A bit of a hypochondriac. And so the least favorite day of the year for a hypochondriac is the day of your annual physical. That is like the least favorite because you're always going in there. I'm thinking about this for days, even weeks ahead. I wonder what he's going to find. I wonder what he's going to find. Oh my goodness, what if there's something bad? And so it's your least favorite day of the year. But when you walk out of there like I did with a clean bill of health, it's your favorite day of the year. And so you walk in, you wake up in the morning, least favorite day of the year. You walk out of there with a clean bill of health and everything's great. It's your favorite day uh, of the year. Now, if my doctor found something suspicious or something that did not look good, would it be an act of love to tell me about it or not tell me about it? It would be an act of love to tell me. It would not be an act of love to say, oh, Glenn is such a head case. I'm just not going to bother him with this. Okay, It would not be an act of love for him to say, you know, I'm going to come off as arrogant and know-it-all if I share this like I know something he doesn't know. No. The most loving thing, even if it gets a bad reaction, the most loving thing is to tell the truth. But, of course, to do it in love, we do it in love, but we do not shirk from speaking the truth. And I believe that people, well-meaning people today that have been watering down the concept of hell um, are, are, are doing a disservice um, uh, to people. And it goes all the way back 2,000 years ago. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say? Boy, there are so many things today when people are saying, About this, did God really say? About that, Did God really say? And hell is one of those things where people are saying, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees uh, in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You'll be destroyed. Okay? You will not certainly die. Satan's whisper from the very beginning You will not certainly die if you do this thing, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be as smart as God. God doesn't want you to be as smart. He's holding out on you. And that if you take from it, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Just like the choir just sang that song. Everybody wants to be like God. Everybody wants to think they're as smart as God. But we're not willing to die on the cross uh, like God did. We're not willing to suffer for the sins of humanity like God did. And so he says, if you take this, uh, you won't really die. Uh, That's not really true, or this particular thing is not really true. But you'll be like God. You'll be as smart as God, knowing uh, good from evil. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, it is people are just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And we want to the heartbeat of our church and of each one of us as individual Christ followers. We want to be all about 
preparing for that day of judgment, knowing that we are prepared because we've received Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and everybody around us is. What we call here your oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence, Um, everybody that that you work with, you students, those you go to school with, um, those in your neighborhood, those that you socialize with. We want our whole church, the heartbeat of Purpose Church, the heartbeat of everybody that's a part of this church family to be, to prepare for the judgment and to make sure that everybody around us is prepared as well. And I'm gonna give you a chance in just a few minutes at the end of this message to pray that prayer to receive Christ so that, so that you can know if you don't know. And our, the passion of our church is to prepare for that day and to make sure those around us that we love and care about uh, prepare for it as well. Now, how we end up on the subject of hell uh, depends on how we handle three different things. Christians, when they, when they try to figure out what God's truth is, we use three different things, tradition, reason, or scripture. And so tradition is a good thing, okay? It's good to know what Christians have taught for the last 2,000 years. That, that, that's a good thing to, to know. Nothing wrong with that. Reason is a good thing. God gave us a mind. Uh, we're to use our minds to reason. That, that is a good thing. And, of course, Scripture, uh, God's Word. But where we end up on something like the subject of hell depends on which one has the final say. And there are three great streams of Christianity, each that use one of those three as the final word. When two things come in conflict with each other, which one uh, wins out? Kind of like rock, paper, scissors. Which one wins out when they come in conflict with one another? If tradition wins out, you end up with something like the teaching of purgatory. There's very little, if any, teaching in the Bible about purgatory where you go through a suffering period to kind of burn off the sins and you have to spend longer in purgatory the more you sin during your life and less in purgatory the less that you sin. So there's basically nothing about that in Scripture, very, very little. And yet, because it's been a tradition within parts of the church uh, for centuries, people still hold on to the concept of purgatory. Uh, Some, their final word is reason. That is, what makes sense to me? And most people with reason as the one that has the final say end up in what's called universalism, where everybody's going to be in heaven in the end. Everybody's going to be saved in the end. Uh, Regardless of what we did in this life, everybody universally is going to end up in heaven. And can I just say right away, I wish with all my heart that this is true. I would love to be wrong. I would be the happiest person in the world if upon death God said you were wrong on this, this was the right position. I would love to be wrong. The problem is we believe Scripture is our final authority, and so I don't believe that, that I am. And that's why I need to warn us and why we need to warn our friends. And we do it with humility and we do it with brokenness. We do it with tears. But we force ourselves to do it because we believe it to be the truth. Here's my problem with people who have reason as their final, uh, the thing that matters most in the end, that has the final say, is I almost sense in their writings that they're almost judging God. And, And you'll hear them say things like, I couldn't serve a God. I wouldn't follow a God that did judgment or that did hell. I can't follow that kind of God. And it's almost as if um, we're, we're putting ourselves in the place of God and saying, I can't follow the God that is, so I'm going to follow the God that I make up that I'm more comfortable with. And we forget, like God says in Isaiah chapter 55, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. God says, I'm smarter than you are. 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so somehow God is going to reconcile his love and his justice. And the way he's going to do that is, is above our ability to comprehend. And so we need to be very, very careful where we reason our way away from certain things because we almost put ourselves in judgment of God and we have our reason have the final say. Now, our church is in the stream of Christianity that as scripture has the final say. That we believe in reason, we believe in tradition, but when the two come in conflict with Scripture, we, uh, as much as we're able to, in humility, follow what God's Word says. There are three main uh, groups that uh, interpretation when you make Scripture your final uh, word and have the final say. One is the literal view. That is that hell is literally everlasting and it is a lake of fire. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, that is written in the book that you've opened up your heart and received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you a chance to do that here if you've never done it. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the literal view is that it is literally everlasting and is literally a lake of fire. The second view that many Christians who follow God's word as their final authority is the metaphorical view. And this says that even though the Bible gives certain pictures, it's just a metaphor for hell is something terrible and hell is something everlasting. For example, Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 13, says that uh, we are thrown into outer darkness, that people in hell are thrown into outer darkness. And so sometimes it's darkness, sometimes it's a lake of fire, sometimes it's other things. And so the metaphorical view is that it's still terrible and it's still eternal, but it is not literally a lake of fire. And then there's the annihilationist view. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 28, we find many verses like this in the scripture, where Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the annihilationist view, and and you'll find this uh, throughout scripture, Uh, Paul, for example, never mentions hell, but he talks about the destruction of those that are lost. And the annihilationist view is that at the end of time, we stand before uh, God, and if we've uh, received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we go into eternity in heaven. But if we are not, we do not have eternal punishment, but instead we are destroyed. It's as if we had never been born. And this certainly has an appeal both to Scripture, because there's a good Scripture to support it. It also has an appeal to our reason, because we say to ourselves, if a person were to end up everlastingly in hell, it is better if they had never been born. And so the annihilationist view of destruction is it is as if they had never been born. And so there is a certain fairness to that that we understand within our reason. But again, I would caution us because probably the majority of Scripture would be a more literal view, even though there is a great amount of Scripture and support for the annihilationist view and even the metaphorical view. The one thing they all have in common is that hell involves separation from God. 
Uh, J.P. Moreland writes, Christianity says people are the most valuable things in the entire creation. If people matter, then personal relationships matter. And hell is largely relational. In the Bible, hell is separation or banishment from the most beautiful being in the world, God himself. It is exclusion from anything that matters, from all value, not only from God, but also from those who have come to know and to love him. The punishment of hell is separation from God, bringing shame, anguish, and regret. Hell was not a part of the original creation. Hell is God's fallback position. Hell is something that God was forced to make because people chose to rebel against him and turn against what was best for them and the purpose for which they were created. Now, with just the few minutes we have left, I want to look at five common objections to what the Bible teaches about hell. I'm going to go very quickly on the first two because most people struggle with numbers three, four, and five. Objection number one, how can God send children to hell? And the quick answer on that is he doesn't. As a matter of fact, children are a picture of salvation and a picture of what it takes to go to heaven. In Matthew 18, verse 3, uh, Jesus said we need to become like little children in order to go to heaven. In Matthew 19, verse 14, uh, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Uh, David, when his infant son died, said uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I will go to him but he, I will go to him in heaven, but he will not return to me. Objection number two is why does everyone suffer the same in hell? And people are like, boy, that's not fair if the Las Vegas shooter and Hitler uh, experienced the same hell as the guy down the street that just never got around to thinking about eternity. And the Bible does seem to indicate that there are degrees of punishment. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable uh, for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now let's spend uh, the rest of our time on these three major objections. Objection number three is why doesn't God just force everyone to go to heaven? And the answer is, he wanted children, not robots. He could have made a bunch of robots that always chose to follow him. But love involves a choice. And with our children, they choose to love us or they choose not. Now, how many of you parents and grandparents wish you had robots on certain days? I do. You, know. you wish you just had a switch and had a robot day just to give you a break from the child day. Uh, we, we don't want, he didn't want robots. He wanted children. And that involves a choice, and love involves a choice. And so in Joshua 24, uh, Joshua said, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. God gave us a choice. Uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 23, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus says, make a choice to follow me. Joshua says, choose this day who you're going to serve. G.K. Chesterton writes, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. And then objection number four, why doesn't God give people a second chance? And the answer to that is he does. He gives us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a and a hundredth chance. 
That's why Jesus is holding off returning. Because he wants to give us one more chance to share with our family member or friend. He wants to give our family member or friend one more chance uh, to turn to him. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It's like Jesus has just been gone a couple of days. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the heart of God, and it should be our heart as well. But each time we say no to him, we may get more chances. But each time we say no, it becomes more difficult to say yes. Each time we say no, our heart is hardened a little bit more, and it becomes more difficult to say yes. Maybe some of you that are younger are saying, you know, just in my early days, I want to live and have some fun and, and, and do some fun stuff. And maybe when I get really old, like Pastor Glenn, and you're not even, and you're not even tempted by anything. I mean, you know, look at him. He couldn't be tempted by anything, you know. You know no wonder he wants to follow God, you know, the poor guy. And, and, and we say we're just going to kind of hold off, you know, on that. Uh, just know that each time we say no, our heart gets a little harder. And it gets harder to say yes. A number of years back, I heard the testimony of one of the few survivors of the biggest plane air, aircraft uh, disaster in, in history. It was on the Canary Islands in an airport called Tenerife Airport. And two 747 jumbo jets collided with each other, killing 583 people. There were 61 survivors. And one of those survivors was a guy by the name of Norman Williams. And he said a very interesting thing. He said, you would think at that moment of terror that people, everybody, if they were still conscious, if they had a chance to, would be crying out to God. But he said it was such an interesting thing that as that disaster happened, half the plane were crying out to God and the other half of the plane were cursing God. Because in that moment of terror, we revert back to the pattern of our lives. And even when given a final chance, those that had called on God during their life called on God in their death. And those that had cursed God or pushed him away during their life did so in death as well. And then objection number five, and this is probably the biggest one of all. This is the one that a lot of people struggle with. What about people who have never heard about Jesus? In Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, that's, that's a sermon for another time. Let's go back to that, suppress the truth with their wickedness. Uh, you know, there is a sense, sometimes you wonder, after the last seven weeks, with all the evidence we've shown for the existence of God and the truth of God's word, you say, why wouldn't somebody, anybody with an open mind would follow that? And Paul says, sometimes we suppress the truth by our wickedness. We, we don't want to be demonstrated that it's true because we want to keep living for ourselves and we want to live life our own way. But that's a subject for another time. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now here again, we don't have to make excuses for God. We don't have to be able to understand it. 
It's a mystery. We can, all that I know about my creator leads me to trust him in that which I do not understand, that I do not know. Um, but on the other hand, I just want you to know that I personally believe that we will be judged by the light that we had available to us and that nobody is going to go to hell for lack of knowledge or lack of opportunity. That's what I personally believe. But I believe it's a mystery, and even if that that isn't the explanation, God has a better explanation than that. As a matter of fact, God says in Jeremiah 29, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And and that's what we see so many stories. In Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius, who, who just had a heart for God, but no chance to know about God. And, and God appeared to him and says, go, go call on a guy named Peter. And so he gets Peter, and Peter walks in and says, now I get it. God has a heart for everybody, all nations, every person. We hear stories, I mentioned this last Sunday, about Islam and how across the Middle East right now, more people are coming to Christ than ever in history. And many of them have the story that Jesus appeared to them in a dream and said, you have a heart for God, now come and follow me. And so I, I don't believe anybody is going to be in hell because of lack of information or lack of opportunity. D.A. Carson writes, hell is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good blokes, but they just didn't believe the right stuff. They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented, only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe and who persist in their God-defying rebellion. Just a few closing thoughts, and, and would you bear with me for five more minutes? I, I just don't want to rush the end here, and, and uh, if, 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 I know it's 11, but if you just give me five more minutes, and we'll get everybody out of here. But just a few closing thoughts. The Bible is a practical book and does not answer hypothetical questions directly. Be very careful that you don't push away God because of a hypothetical question. Another thing to remember is that no one's going to be saved by any religion. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Uh, next one is we can be sure that God will be good, right, and just. Everything we know about our, we understand about our creator leads us to trust him in that which we don't understand. Abraham said this about God in Genesis 18, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing. He was praying, wrestling with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, He said to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And everything we know about him and his heart tells us the answer to that question is yes. The judge of all the earth will do right. Now, here's the important thing. We have no excuse. There's hypothetical about what about the person that's never heard. But here's the thing. We have no excuse. We we have the truth in front of us. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 5, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So we are encountering the truth. If you're watching online or in Kalispell or in Arco, we, we, we have the truth. And so we need to respond to the truth that we have. And we need to be bold. If, you've, if you have Christ as your Lord and Savior, we need to be bold. Romans 1, 16. We need to be not shy doctors who don't tell the patient what they need to hear. 
We need to be bold doctors who tell the patient what they need to hear. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Um, Spurgeon was considered the greatest preacher of all time. And he said something back in the 1800s that I want true of our church today. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. May that be the passion and the heart of Purpose Church. Now, I would be remiss if we just didn't take a moment here that if you've never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, today's the day. We have no excuse. How will, how will we survive if we neglect so great of a salvation? So if you look in front of you in the card book rack, it has this thing that says resource. And it has the three steps to receive Christ. Number one, admit your condition before God. God, I need a Savior. And B, believe that Jesus is God's solution to your condition. And by the way, you may be sitting here thinking, oh, Glenn, I'm so afraid. Um, I, you don't know the sins I've committed. You, you, you have no idea what, what, I, what I've done. I think I've done the unforgivable sin. There is no unforgivable sin except for rejecting Jesus. Jesus can handle it all. It doesn't matter what you've done. He can cover it. Don't let Satan whisper in your ear. You can be completely, utterly forgiven, past, present, future, on your way to heaven. And see, we choose. Choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over because of the cross of Jesus, has crossed over from death to life. And I want to give you a chance. I'm going to pray this little simple prayer. There's nothing magical in the exact wording of it. It simply summarizes the cry of the heart that the Bible tells us we need to have. Would you pray silently with me as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And all the Christ followers said, Amen. Amen.